Hello and welcome to the Chess Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Dominique Pepper. On behalf of CHEST, I'd like to welcome you to this month's CHEST podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and I'm the moderator of the CHEST podcast section. Thank you all for joining us today for what will be a really terrific discussion on venous thromboembolism prophylaxis in critically ill adults. We are very fortunate to have Dr. Fernando as our guest, and we'll be discussing his article published in CHEST entitled Venous Thromboembolism Prophylaxis in Critically Ill Adults, a Systematic Review a network meta-analysis. We will also discuss the accompanying editorial by Dr. Holly, entitled To Generalize or Not to Generalize, the Approach to Venous Thromboembolism Prophylaxis in the ICU. So we'll go ahead and introduce our guests. Uh, first, uh, Shannon. Yeah, thanks for having me on the podcast. Uh, my name is Shannon Fernando. I uh, originally trained as a, an emergency physician uh, here in Ottawa, uh, in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, and then went on to do my critical care training also in Ottawa, uh, it's a two-year fellowship, and I just finished uh, this year and started my first job as a critical care physician at Lakeridge Health Corporation uh, in the Toronto area. So thanks again for having me. Yeah, an absolute pleasure, and congratulations on completing your fellowship and all the best for uh, your career going forward. Um, Aaron? Yeah, thank you for having me as well. Uh, my name is Aaron Holly. I work at the Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. I'm a pulmonary and critical care and sleep physician. Uh, I currently serve as the program director for our Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine Fellowship. Uh, and relevant to this particular topic, uh, in the process of co-chairing a, a chest guideline on, on VTE prophylaxis where we're uh, going to be covering the, the prophylaxis in the critically ill, um, and uh, Fernando uh, is, uh, or I'm sorry, Dr. Fernando is going to be joining me um, as, uh, as part of that team. So I'm, I'm really happy to be here and, and comment on this. Perfect. So, Aaron, maybe you can set the stage for us. Why is it so important for us to understand VTE prophylaxis in critically ill adults? Yeah, so I think most, uh, uh, many of the listeners at least, uh, if not all, will uh, are, are aware of the elevated VTE rates in, in patients who are hospitalized, even hospitalized with acute medical conditions and not just post-surgical conditions. And when you talk about the ICU, uh, those rates of VTE uh, seem to be even higher, and uh, there's multiple reasons for that, uh, multiple risk factors that tend to uh, be inherent to being hospitalized in the ICU, immo immobility, paralysis, uh, uh, the older age, comorbidities, uh, lots of things that, that tend to lead to higher VTE rates. Uh, and, and this is a preventable disease where you know, we know with chemoprophylaxis, we can dramatically reduce the rates of uh, VTE. So, so we know prophylaxis works in this population. Um, you know, in the individual patient, um, you know, where I've practiced at least, and, and I think at least through most of the, uh, through most of North America, um, people are fairly well, uh, well in tune with giving VTE prophylaxis or at least considering it. 
Um, but it is a decision that that we make over and over again. So we make it on admission, but uh, the nature of critical illness is that patients change fairly frequently and their their conditions changed uh, uh, over time. And, and with that, their VTE risk-benefit ratio can change over time. So understanding how VTE prophylaxis is optimized in this patient uh, population, both acutely and over time, uh, is really important because we're going to we, we do this or consider it on every patient every day. So when you think of it on a on a population level, uh, getting it right is very important. And we know that uh, we definitely want to prevent uh, blood clots in the legs and then mobilizing to the lungs to cause pulmonary emboli. But what are the risks of doing uh, a VTE prophylaxis, Aaron? Uh, the obvious one is bleeding risk. Um, you know, there, there's lower rates of, of things like HIT uh, with uh, some of the heparin products, but those tend to be uh, very, very low, particularly at uh, prophylactic doses and uh, with uh, low, low molecular weight heparins, but even prophylactic doses of unfractionated heparins in a medical population. Uh, so, so bleeding risk is, is really the big one. And uh, unfortunately, many of the things that put a patient at elevated risk for having a VTE are the, the same things that uh, put them at risk for having uh, bleeding. So getting that risk-benefit right is, uh, is, is often tricky, uh, particularly in the ICU where there's so many comorbid disease and acute processes occurring. Okay, I think you've set the stage great uh, for us. So, Shannon, let's pull you into this discussion. You went ahead and performed a systematic review. Um, why did you perform the systematic review? Um, and uh, what other studies did you see uh, that prompted you to do this? I think there were a lot of reasons behind the, the motivation for doing the systematic review. I think the first is that uh, we see, you know, anecdotally, a lot of us know that there's a lot of varied practice with regard to the use of uh, VTE prophylaxis. A lot of this came from the work uh, led by Dr. Deborah Cook, uh, who I think many uh, listeners in critical care are familiar with, uh, one of the landmark researchers uh, in our field, and as somebody who's been a great support and uh, mentor to me. And a lot of what Dr. Cook's work has done has shown the, you know, the various efficacy of these uh, of these uh, agents. But more importantly, I think she's done some of the most important trials, which are survey-based studies. And I always say you know, whenever we're considering a research question, it's always valuable to see if there's survey-based data because it really captures the practice variation, uh, as we know exists within critical care. And so a lot of her work has shown that, you know, different people are using different agents uh, in different populations. And so we wanted to see um, how, they, how the, the efficacy of these various ther- therapies and, and or the risks uh, compared to each other. So that was the primary, the primary uh, motivation behind the study. It was just really... Um, seeing whether we could come to some deduction in the midst of wide practice variability and, and, and some differences in, in clinical practice guidelines. Um, and I think uh, ultimately uh, our results uh, will largely, you know, uh, confirm what I think a lot of people are doing in the field. But uh, I think it was really important to take the step and do this study uh, to, really, to really confirm that. Okay, so let's jump into your study methods, and importantly, maybe you could describe for our listeners uh, which VTE prophylaxis uh, um, uh, methods you used, uh, mechanical versus um, chemoprophylaxis, uh, and which agents uh, were employed, and then how how your systematic review addressed any limitations of previous studies. 
Shannon? Yeah, so really important um, to, to go over this uh, in the sense that we used a network meta-analysis uh, study design. Now, many people may not be familiar with network meta-analysis. It has a lot of benefits over a traditional conventional meta-analysis. Um, you know, just to briefly give an example, you know, uh, a conventional meta-analysis will directly compare two treatments that have been tested usually in multiple trials. Um, but a network meta-analysis takes advantage of what we call indirect comparison. So if you think of treatment A has been compared to treatment B in various trials, uh, and treatment B has been compared to treatment C uh, in various trials, but treatment A has never been compared to treatment C, we can use the, the, the direct comparisons between A and B and B and C to derive what we call an indirect estimate between A and C. Um, and then we combine both the direct estimates as we use in conventional meta-analysis with these indirect uh, uh, um, estimates to kind of arrive at our network estimate. Uh, and it's really important that readers know that it's, when you're looking at network meta-analysis, you should hope that uh, whoever's doing that study would present to you both the direct and indirect estimates so you can make sure that it all makes sense and it fits. Um, but it, this really allows us to take advantage of basically every single trial that's been done in this area of BT prophylaxis in, in critically ill patients, regardless of what uh, what treatments or what uh, treatments have been compared to each other. So it really allows us to harness all of the power and all of the patients uh, and the sample sizes of these trials. Uh, so within our network meta-analysis, we compared uh, really uh, four or five really important treatments. Um, the first was low molecular weight heparin, uh, regardless of the actual individual, whether it was, uh, you know, daltaparin or enoxaparin. Um, uh, unfractionated heparin, probably the two most uh, commonly studied uh, treatments. We looked at compressive therapy, um, you know, lower extremity compression devices. Uh, and then we looked at, which is, you know, generally termed to be mechanical prophylaxis. Uh, and then we looked at combination therapy, um, which is a combination of both pharmacologic agents and mechanical devices, which was tested, uh, obviously, most recently in 2019 in the, in the very, very large PREVENT trial in the New England Journal of Medicine led by Yassine Arabi, one of our co-authors. Um, and then the, the last group that we looked at was uh, control uh, or, or placebo. Um, some of these trials used a placebo. Uh, and some of them used um, a, a, like a no treatment whatsoever. So the patient just didn't receive any treatment. Uh, and the last thing I'll say, because I think it's really important if you read our, our, our study, is to know that we also applied the GRADE framework. So the, the GRADE stands for Grading of Recommendations, Assessment, Development, Evaluation. Um, the GRADE is really important because it's, it, takes, it, it takes into account all the aspects of the trials included uh, and the, the precision of the estimates. Um, and um, it combines it to arrive at what we call a certainty. And you see this a lot in, in clinical practice guidelines. Usually there'll be somebody who's a grade investigator. And in our case, there was a senior author of the study, uh, Dr. Bram Rochford, who has been uh, a, grade, uh, a grade investigator and grade analyst for a number of years in major guidelines. Um, but it allows us to attach a certainty to our findings. So instead of just saying treatment A is, reduces the likelihood of VT compared to treatment B, we can now add a certainty to it, um, and, and that will guide future research in a lot of ways because if there's low certainty or very low certainty, uh, it's important for readers to know that. It's important to just to take that away uh, in addition to it. So uh, I think that's a really unique and important aspect of, of the methodology surrounding our network meta-analysis. And then, Aaron, you had the opportunity to review the methods uh, presented by uh, Dr. Fernando. Maybe you could just comment on them before he gets into the results um, and maybe comment on uh, what type of ICUs or, or, or what they, they defined as critically ill. Uh, sure. So um, 
they uh, included a number of studies uh, that uh, looked at, at different populations. So um, they uh, include studies that looked at medical populations, and they looked at studies that included uh, post-surgical and, and trauma populations. Um, and that can that can be a little tricky uh, during interpretation, where uh, you know depending on which guideline you're looking at uh, over the years and and what their selection criteria you can they're they're using, you can you can come to different results. Um, and no no way is is right or wrong necessarily. But when you look back through ASH or or chest guidelines, they had often uh, sectioned their, uh, and I'm sorry, the, the ASH is the American Society of Hematology for uh, those who, who don't know the, the acronym. Uh, the, the, when they were evaluating uh, critically ill patients, you know, they had a, a specific section for, you know, medically uh, critically ill patients. And then your, your, your results there can be a little bit different from if you're going to do a, a meta-analysis or network meta-analysis and include both trauma uh, and post-surgical patients. So that can, as you, as you might imagine, that can cause some confusion, um, and, it, and it can cause some, some differing in the, in the recommendations over time. Um, historically, uh, there's been data to say that you know, trauma patients, for example, critically ill trauma patients, are at particularly high risk uh, for VTE, which, which I think is true. Uh, and, and we have good data to, to say that. Um, and then, you know, spinal cord injury, um, uh, orthopedic surgery, all these um, may have slightly different uh, risks than your, um, uh, than your standard uh, medically ill, critic, critically ill patient. So it can get awfully muddy when you do all that, um, and I, I sort of touched on that a little bit in 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 the editorial that I wrote. And and this is not something that uh, Dr. Fernando and his uh, and his co-authors weren't aware of. I mean, he's uh, the many of the co-authors have been, uh, as he said, have been publishing and, and researching on this uh, for for decades and have been huge names in the in the field. So uh, it, it was a it was a conscious choice. And I think it does allow us to get more more granularity um, in terms of what the true effects in a critically ill population of these different agents are. So, so again, it's not a it's not a criticism at all. It's it's more an explanation for the listeners why, to some degree, with the same uh, uh, with with similar trials uh, over the years, uh, there's depending on how you do your inclusion criteria. Um, you, you might find slightly different results, and the signal historically has been better for um, trauma patients uh, and some surgical patients as having a benefit with low molecular weight heparin over unfractionated heparin. Great. I think that's a good uh, insight. Um, Shannon, I wanted to actually just pull you into that discussion quickly about your definition of critical illness, because as we've learned over the last two years with COVID patients, uh, patients on high flow and uh, in any other situation, they would have been intubated and been in the ICU, but some of them have been managed on the floors. Um, what definition of critical illness did you use for inclusion into your systematic review? Yeah, it's a really, really important point, Dominic. And uh, to be very clear, we only included randomized trials where patients were admitted to an intensive care unit setting. So um, that had to be a, a unit that involves mechanical ventilation, whether the patients are ventilated or not. 
Um, and that's, that's usually what, what defines critical illness and the ability to provide vasoactive medications. Uh, those are usually the two most common uh, indications that were mentioned in the trials. But it's really important to indicate that you're right. Patients with higher severity of illness that might have been maintained outside of these units would not have been included uh, in our review. Okay, so let's jump into your um, findings. Um, Shannon, maybe you could give us the key findings um, and how you interpreted them, and then we'll get Aaron to jump in. Yeah, so I'll break this down into, into just a few, few parts uh, of most, the most salient findings. Um, so the first thing we did was look at these treatments as compared to c- control or placebo. Um, what we find is that they, they work. So um, low molecular weight heparin, we know, compared to control or placebo, reduces the risk of DVT. And we, we said that with pretty high certainty. Um, so we can be pretty clear about that. On fractionated heparin, um, we said may reduce. So that was based on low certainty evidence. Uh, which influences the, you know, the narrative statement that we use. So we said may reduce. Um, and it seems that both of these therapies relative to uh, placebo do reduce the incidence, uh, even though you might see the 95% confidence interval, you know, above one, I think as a, as a, as a, you know, a scientific world, we're moving away from a reliance on P values, which I think is good. Um, and so that's why, you know, the grade helps uh, in framing these results. So, you know, compared to no treatment, I think pharmacological therapy does seem to be better. Uh, with regard to mechanical uh, therapy, compressive devices, you know, again, the, the point estimate was on the side of benefit, but the 95% off-confidence intervals went from 0.5 to 1.5. So, you know, not really good evidence that these therapies work. Um, and then the third thing I'll say is that uh, with regard to combination therapy, we really, you know, the, the point estimates were so, were so uh, imprecise that we only really had very low certainty evidence um, regards to combination therapy. And in light of a pre-existing very large randomized trial with a PREVENT trial that didn't show a benefit of combination therapy, I think in this situation we should rely uh, on those findings. So overall, uh, it seems like all of these therapies, or or it seems like pharmacological therapy is is superior to non-pharmacological therapy uh, or no therapy with regards to reducing the risk of BTE. The second major finding I'll say is that when we compared amongst these pharmacological therapies themselves, we did actually find that low molecular weight heparin probably reduces the risk of DVT as compared to unfractionated heparin uh, based on moderate certainty evidence. This is really important um, and is in keeping uh, with what, uh, what Dr. Holly was saying with regards to the, uh, the pre-existing ASH guidelines, um, which do currently make a very uh, low-level uh, recommendation for the use of low molecular weight heparin uh, over unfractionated heparin. So uh, really, um, again, uh, pointing to the important superiority of low molecular weight heparin over unfractionated heparin. And again, if you go back to the original reason we did this study, still an area, I think, uh, where there's very practice. You do see uh, a, a decent number of, uh, of practitioners still using unfractionated heparin uh, as, uh, as first-line um, DVT prophylaxis or VT prophylaxis. Um, and the third thing we did was look at major uh, like you know, um, adverse events. Uh, what's important to realize here is that we didn't really show any differences in major bleeding um, between low molecular weight heparin and unfractionated heparin. Um, and uh, we didn't really, you know, there seemed to be a trend towards higher bleeding, obviously, with the use of uh, low molecular weight heparin, heparin as compared to control. So very much in keeping with um, what, uh, what Dr. Holly was saying in terms of the major risks, but not really a clear-cut difference uh, based on the existing evidence. And the last uh, uh, you know, adverse event is that of, of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. We found a lower incidence uh, of, of hit with uh, low molecular weight heparin as compared to unfractionated heparin. The big caveat here is based on very, very few events. So across, you know, trials of over 2,000 patients, there are only 15 incidences of hit. 
So uh, with, when you keep that in mind, we, we ended up rating it as pretty low certainty uh, of that effect. But again, in keeping with what we always seem to think, which is that the incidence of HIT uh, is lower in patients receiving low molecular heparin as compared to unfractionated heparin. Um, but those are the major findings uh, of our study. And how did you interpret them, Shannon? Um, the, when you say the confidence intervals were wide, is it because there were too few patients in the studies, or was it just a heterogeneous effect? And then in terms of the difference uh, with low molecular weight heparin versus unfractionated heparin, um, were there different uh, study designs in terms, because obviously we, you, we should prescribe uh, uh, unfractionated heparin in those with renal dysfunction. Um, did you notice any difference in the studies in that regard? Yeah, so those are, those are really, really great questions and really important points, Dominic. And I think, uh, you know, it certainly warrants some caveats to, to our findings. So the first part is um, there, to our knowledge, have not been any large-scale randomized trials in critically ill patients uh, looking at patients with renal insufficiency. Uh, it remains an, an active area of research. Dr. Cook has done a lot of work in this area um, and has shown pretty convincingly that there's, it seems to be safe to give low molecular weight heparin to patients with renal insufficiency. Um, but there isn't a head-to-head trial, uh, to our knowledge, comparing those two agents uh, against each other. So that's an important caveat that we don't really have uh, data on that specific subgroup. And I'm sure we'll talk about, you know, limitations of the study. That's a really important one um, to keep in mind. It's hard to break down uh, the heterogeneity of the trials because, as I said, this is a network meta-analysis uh, and we incorporate all of them. So, you know, even if a trial never, you know, tested on fractionated heparin and only tested low molecular heparin, we would still use those patients to generate part of our network estimate. Um, and so it's difficult to say, but most of the trials were heterogeneous patient, uh, patient populations or critically ill patients, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're all-comer population uh, in an ICU. There were a few trials that looked at trauma patients specifically, but uh, those were certainly, um, while, while relatively large, were, were the minority of trials. So um, in terms of patient population, so there's six trials with only, you know, less than 2,000 patients as compared to over 70, almost 7,500 patients from mixed units. So uh, it, it's an important thing to keep in mind, and I think one of the major limitations that I'll mention um, is that, you know, we, we compared, as, as Aaron said, across all subgroups, and whether some treatments are better in some subgroups, we just don't know. Um, it's difficult to tease that out using a network uh, meta-analysis um, because you're, you're, by using the advantage of trying to, take a, of trying to use all the patients, uh, and taking that advantage, the, the concomitant disadvantage is that uh, you really are, are a victim of heterogeneity if you combine multiple heterogeneous trials. So I don't, uh, I don't have a good answer to that other than to say we just don't really know. Um, and certainly, I think given our confidence, we, we rated our confidence uh, using grade as such. And so that leaves the door open for future trials uh, in those subpopulations. So to me, the major take-homes are uh, certainly use um, a pharmacological agent as soon as you possibly can because these seem to show benefit over no treatment, um, and the, the effect size is certainly larger than what we see with compression devices. That's the first major take-home for me. The second major take-home for me is that low molecular weight heparin seems to be superior to unfractionated heparin, um, and certainly in populations where this has been demonstrated to be safe practice, um, that's the treatment that I would lean on uh, in, in, uh, in most critically ill patients. So, Aaron, let's pull you into this discussion. Uh, what was your um, interpretation of these findings, and why do you think low molecular weight heparin um, is superior to uh, unfractionated heparin? What would the mechanism of action be for that? Yeah, uh, another great question. Um, I, 
I mean, all the findings uh, to me as somebody who, who operates in this space are, are important. Um, they confirm, I think, a lot of what we, what we think or at least what I think and w- what I believe many in the, in the critical care medicine field think, um, which is that chemoprophylaxis does work and it does reduce, uh, reduce VTE and can be done safely. Uh, and w- I, I believe we all, we all think that, but Again, having a very well-done trial that uh, combines a lot of the existing data to sort of prove that and put numbers to it is is very important. So having an up-to-date trial that does that uses modern statistical methods, uses the great approach, as Dr. Fernando described, is is really important, even even for those out there who said, well, you know, VTE prophylaxis works. I, I knew that. I mean, what... What's the big deal here? Um, again, updating it and, and doing it correctly and using all the modern tools we have, I think, has a lot of value. Uh, beyond that, you know, the, the low molecular weight heparin versus unfractionated heparin has, has gone back and forth if you, if you look at the guidelines that, that we've had over the years. And I went, I went back through these, and I, I mentioned this also in the editorial that I wrote, in 2008, the, the chest VTE prophylaxis guidelines said, well, unfractionated heparin or low molecular weight heparin, e- either one is probably fine for your critically ill patients, but for those patients who are at particularly high risk, and in 2008, the, the two groups they identified were uh, trauma patients, uh, I believe they said spinal cord injury, and they, they didn't restrict it to those two groups, but said, for example, uh, trauma patients and spinal cord injury, you should probably use low molecular weight heparin over unfractionated heparin. And so that's where it was in 2008. Uh, in 2012, they, they walked it back a little bit, uh, reading between the lines and said, hey, uh, they, they didn't mention risk stratification per se within critical care, the, the critical care population, and, but just said high, probably low molecular weight heparin or unfractionated heparin would be fine. And in their evidence to decision section said, hey, some people thought we should suggest uh, low molecular weight heparin over unfractionated heparin in this population, uh, but they didn't, they didn't quite get there for that, that guideline. And then you know, by 2018, you see the, the ASH guidelines that we mentioned before. You see the, the NICE uh, guidelines out of the U.K., and they both suggest low, mole- low molecular weight heparin over unfractionated heparin. Um, and so I, I, I'm hoping that Dr. Fernando's paper will, will bring a little bit more uniformity and we can, we can move closer towards having all the guidelines do the, do the same thing, right, and, uh, and, and say, hey, we really suggest uh, low molecular weight heparin over unfractionated heparin in this patient population. Um, I, that is already what I, what I do uh, in, in my critically ill patients, unless they have renal failure, and then I individualize it a little bit more, but I'm going to default to low molecular weight heparin already, um, and that's an easier decision now because as rare as the, the hit rates are, we, we think they're slightly lower with low molecular weight heparin, and the, the cost has changed over time. Where I'm, I've been around long enough to to remember when low molecular weight heparin was still on uh, was still on a patent, and then you know cost efficacy became a a really big concern. 
that's not to say it's not a concern now and isn't a concern in certain areas of the country or certain areas of the world. Um, but I, I'm, I'm assuming many of us in North America, at least, view the cost efficacy uh, part as as less important when you're debating those two uh, medications. Um, but it, but it still has relevance, I think. Uh, like I said, in, in certain areas and across the world. So, you know, the fact that. Fernando, uh, Dr. Fernando and his uh, co-authors really, really showed this in an, in an up-to-date network meta-analysis that uh, it, low molecular weight heparin seems to be favored. Uh, I think is is really important. Um, the next the next step is is some of the stuff uh, you mentioned, which is okay if if low molecular weight heparin is truly better in a critically ill population. Um, do how how hard should I push it in my renal failure patients? Am I am I doing them a disservice by just defaulting to saying, well, I'm just going to give them unfractionated heparin because uh, they have renal failure, and I, I feel comfortable doing that because it shouldn't bioaccumulate the way some of the low molecular weight heparins will. And uh, there there's still a lot of uncertainty there, uh, and that that's been an area of interest for me, and an and an area that uh, Dr. Fernando and I are are going to address in the in the upcoming guidelines. Uh, specifically, how to how to address renal renal failure patients. Um, most of the guidelines say either switch to unfractionated heparin or, or dose adjust your your low molecular weight heparin if you're if you're going to continue using it. Uh, but but we don't really know what the optimal approach is, and the, the dose adjustment versus unfractionated heparin haven't been compared. And we just published a study earlier this year showing that. Uh, renal failure in the ICU, particularly acute kidney injury, is going to dramatically increase your VTE rate in a in a critically ill or even a general medical population. So, um, renal failure uh, needs more work and needs more data, so we know how to optimize those patients. So, Aaron, the question I have is: um, We know that there's uncertainty. We know that there's numerous patients that get admitted to critically ill or, or the ICU. Um, BTE prophylaxis is a big issue in the ICU. Why don't we have studies that have addressed this issue? Um, uh, we, we seem to have maybe five or ten years ago, uh, folks would give IV fluids, and there was this big debate about saline versus uh, lactated ringers, and no one had actually addressed the question. Um, the same seems to be uh, true of VTE. You'd think that uh, as a critical care a community that this uh, issue would have been put to bed already and that studies would have been done. Is it time that we start performing adaptive platform trials to answer this question? Uh, maybe. I, I, I will say this is when you dive into the, the VTE prophylaxis data and the VTE prophylaxis research, and Dr. Fernando can probably speak to this quite well, having just done the work that he did, uh, it's a lot harder than you, than you think to sort of get answers for these questions. Um, although we know that uh, VTE occurs in the critically ill population, uh, prevalence rates vary quite a bit depending on what you use as your outcome. I mean, are you going to use screening ultrasound or are you looking at PEs? Are you looking at only symptomatic DVT? All those, all those questions come in and depending on how you look at it, you really need large patient numbers to show a difference. 
and that's just that's just looking at VTE chemoprophylaxis versus a, a placebo. You, you you need to generate some some pretty decent numbers there. Um, if you're starting to compare, say, low molecular weight to unfractionated heparin, well, well, both of them are going to reduce the VTE rate. So again, you're you're going to need pretty large patient numbers to uh, even in a critically ill population. To, to show a statistically significant reduction with one agent over the other. So some of these uh, adaptive trials and the, thing like, uh, the things like the SALT trial that they, they did and some of the fluid trials that you mentioned, uh, not having thought this through uh, before right now as we're talking on the podcast, seem like they might be ideally suited uh, to answer a question like this where you know, doing randomized controlled trials of sufficient size is challenging. Shannon, your response? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think uh, to, to Dr. Holly's point, there is, I mean, the, I, there is a lot of variability here in, in the way these studies are done. I, I'm a firm believer, as I know many of our co-authors are, that uh, to do these kind of studies appropriately, these patients do need to have routine screening ultrasounds done, uh, which is difficult. Uh, but that's also because critically ill patients, you know, are often mechanically ventilated, sedated. They don't report pain. Um, they're in recumbent position. They don't, you know, don't have the classic leg swelling that you might see uh, with the DVT. Um, and so that's, that's really, really important to keep in mind. The other important thing to know is that these patient populations are, are varied in their risk profile. Um, so one of the things that one of the trials that's ongoing right now in Toronto is a trial being led by Dr. Damon Scales, one of the co-authors on this on this study, which is venous thromboembolism prophylaxis in patients with severe traumatic brain injury, the protest trial. Um, so that's you know a, a population where we know the risk the risk profile is different, the risk of bleeding, especially intracranially, uh, is higher. And so it, it's 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 difficult to tease that out, I think, with a platform trial. Um, and, uh, I, and so I think, you know, the, the approach that, that's being taken right now of, of just individual, the trials within individual subgroups, I think is probably beneficial. I think we have a good answer for what to do more routinely in the IC when we look at mixed populations. And that's the data that we have right now. I think the bigger questions that are on the rise are what do we do in specific patient populations? You know, how does with patients with different risk profiles and potentially risk, uh, better benefit profiles? You know, the, the, the common patient population we also often talk about is the patient with malignancy in the ICU. Uh, you know, a patient whose risk of BT is going to be elevated no matter what. Uh, you know, it, it, how do we do dose-adjusted trials? And, and you saw that happen with, with COVID-19, right, and, and it, with, with, with adaptive trials um, like REMAP-CAP and ACTIF-4A um, and ATTACK where they look at therapeutic anticoagulation in critically ill patients. Uh, so, I mean, certainly there's, there's value in, in, in those populations of looking at it that way. Um, I'm, I'm just kind of on the same, same wavelength as, as Dr. Hall. I remain skeptical um, that that's going to be something that will happen in the, in the short term. Uh, I think right now uh, our existing approach of trying to answer this on individual patient with individual patient populations is probably our best way forward uh, for the time being. Gotcha. So let's dive into the key limitations of your study, um, Dr. Fernando. What were they, especially seeing as this was a uh, network meta-analysis? What do you want our uh, listeners to be aware of? Yeah, so there's a few things that I think are really, really important to point out. The first is we've discussed, I think, and always needs to be discussed in a network meta-analysis is that of heterogeneity. Um, so whenever you compare multiple trials, especially because you're pulling data from some trials that, you know, have not compared, you know, might not involve the comparator that you're interested in, you always have to just be aware of the general degree of heterogeneity within your study. Um, and, and so what we've done is obviously we presented this data 
uh, overall, we've broken down the data. We published a, a follow-up study uh, led by my sec- the, my co co lead, uh, uh, Dr. Alexander Tran. Uh, we published it in uh, Annals of Surgery. It's coming out uh, in January of this year, in the January. She's looking at trauma patients specifically. Same exact findings uh, when we broke it down by trauma patients. So I think, again, it speaks to the need to look at this at individual levels uh, and patients with different risk profiles. And I think that's what the upcoming work will answer. But it's important to always recognize that, uh, you know, just like any any trial that looks at a broad population, any uh, any meta-analysis that looks at a broad population will inform you more about routine practice. Uh, in a general population, it doesn't inform you uh, about uh, about how the treatment might be beneficial across patients with different risk or benefit profiles uh, or in subpopulations. So I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. Another important thing to keep in mind uh, that we mentioned is we didn't look at trials including patients with renal insufficiency. I think that's a really really important area uh, in critically ill patients going forward. Obviously, the the incidence of AKI in in, in ICUs is is pretty significant, um, and so we need, do need to keep that in mind going forward. That we're not using an agent like unfractionated heparin that is perceived to be safer, but that we know in, in general populations is inferior uh, or likely inferior to low molecular heparin. The third major uh, limitation is we didn't compare dosing. Um, so dosing across trials uh, was largely consistent, I would say, but there were different uh, different low molecular heparin views. So it's pretty even split between those using dolphaparin and noxaparin, which is pretty consistent with clinical practice. I work at different centers and even within the centers uh, within the same local health network, uh, there's different uh, different low molecular heparins that are used. It just reflects what's available in pharmacological formulary. Uh, so it's just an important thing to keep in mind. And the last thing, and I think you have to mention this, is we didn't look at any trials that included patients with COVID-19. And uh, we know from pretty good data that the thromboembolic burden uh, in COVID-19 patients is high. I think all of us who take care of these patients in the ICU have, can attest to that. Um, we have trials, very large, high-quality trials, as I mentioned, that look at therapeutic anticoagulation in these populations. Um, and so just remember that these findings might not, you know, be exactly what we find when this is investigated uh, in for prophylaxis in COVID patients. But I think we have to add that, that um, you know, that important caveat because that is a population that's obviously, you know, pretty common in our ICUs right now. Um, and, and personally, my personal practice is exactly what I would do with an, another ARDS patient that we've been enrolled in in the trials that we included in, in these uh, in this network meta-analysis. But you know uh, that is an important thing to to keep in mind. Great. And Dr. Holly, what additional uh, limitations do you want our listeners to be aware of? And then, in addition to that, maybe you could comment on uh, the, sc- the use of routine screening for um, the DVTs with, with ultrasound. Uh, what is your practice, and what would you recommend? Sure. I, I don't know if I have additional limitations that uh, would need to be highlighted. I thought Dr. Fernando just did a really good job of of reviewing them. Uh, just to sort of piggyback on some of the things that he said, uh, the, the heterogeneity that we, we've focused on a lot in, in these populations uh, when we're, we're discussing this paper on, on this podcast, I mean, it's, it's unavoidable to, to some degree. Critically ill patients are a, are a heterogeneous uh, group uh, by nature, um, so it, you know it's it's a limitation, but at the same time, it, it increases your generalizability. That's sort of the deal you make when you when you do this. So the now now we have a, a paper that I do believe can be broadly applied across different ICU populations with confidence and has more applicability than it would uh, would have otherwise. And Dr. Fernando said that, and I, I think he's correct. 
Um, in the in the future, you know, we do have risk stratification uh, scores out there, modeling and such for both uh, bleeding and VTE prophylaxis, and uh, they're good. They they need work. They're not perfect. Uh, we're still figuring out exactly how to operationalize those. We're going to have a section on that in the upcoming uh, guideline that we'll do as well. Uh, so I I think you know ultimately personalization to the extent possible is 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 what we're what we're headed for and what we'll get to. Uh, it's going to take a little while to get there, and in, until we do uh, th- this trial, uh, yes, there there is some heterogeneity, but it's it's quite pragmatic. It's very important, and it can be it can be broadly applied. Um, uh, Dr. Fernando brought up some great other other points as well. Hey, you know, there, there's still a lot that you could potentially uncover, right? Are are all low molecular weight heparins the same? Are they? Is the dosing just right? Should we alter the dosing? Should we do BID in all medically hospitalized patients? There's there's lots of questions you could go go to there, and in in seeing how COVID-19 played out. Uh, we were forced, or at least I was forced, to do more of a deep dive into what different uh, what different areas of the world are doing for their VTE prophylaxis, and in terms of dosing, in terms of low molecular weight agents, um, and it, it was a lot less uniform than I naively thought it might be. Uh, so all of those are important questions that need to be that need to be answered over over time. Um, I think the pharmacodynamic data would would tell us that. All low, low molecular weight heparins are not exactly the same, and there there likely is differences in in renal clearance and and efficacy and and such. So, lots of lots of things that we we still need to explore on this. Um, on the on the topic of ultrasound screening, uh, there there's sort of two separate pieces to that. There's ultrasound screening in clinical practice. And then there's ultrasound screening in a in a randomized trial when you're trying to do outcomes in in a critically ill population, and I'll take the the latter uh, the latter scenario first, which uh, Dr. Fernando mentioned. It, I I think you all really you, you have to do that as you're studying critically ill patients uh, to uh, to screen with ultrasound in order to detect uh, DVTs. Because as Dr. Fernando said, and as his, his co-authors talk about, the, there's, they, they're just not going to present otherwise the, the same way an outpatient would with unilateral leg swelling. Uh, there's too many uh, other things going on. They're too often sedated, intubated, so on and so forth, that you're, you're going to miss a whole bunch of, of VTEs that way. Uh, so in order to power your study appropriately and sort of really look at these outcomes, uh, you, you have to do it to design your trial. Um, and I, I agree with his, his point there. Um, the, it has a limitation, which is it, it is not real-world practice in most places and is not clinically recommended by most but not all guidelines. And what happens is if you, if you screen for DVT, you will pick up more DVTs that, that may or may not go on to uh, be a clinically significant event, wh- whether that be extension and unilateral leg swelling and so on and so forth, all the way up to being a clinically significant pulmonary embolism. So if you're screening for DVT, you're going to get a, a bunch of asymptomatic events. Uh, once you see it, you're going you're, you're gonna to treat it. Um, and now you'll never know whether that event would have become something clinically ap- apparent or clinically important to, to both the patient and the, and the physician. And so when you look at a lot of the, the, the trials that 
Dr. Fernando in, included, they, they all used uh, ultrasound screening. And again, I think that's totally appropriate, but it hurts your ability to show differences in, in PEs because those uh, become a, a, a rarer event. And there are different, uh, there are different estimates for, for how many asymptomatic DVTs you see in an ICU population will, will ultimately go on to become a, a, a quote-unquote clinically more important event. Uh, the, the estimates vary. So um, it's, it's totally appropriate, but it's a, a challenging thing when you try and interpret, uh, interpret the data afterwards. And that's what makes some of these trials uh, uh, very difficult. Um, it's also uh, cumbersome, right, to have to uh, do ultrasounds uh, repeatedly in order to do that screening. It makes the, the trials harder, but I, I do think it's necessary. Yeah, it definitely gets tricky. Um, do you uh, kind of balancing, you know, screening, finding the DVT uh, versus, you know, waiting for the event and uh, they may get an, a life-threatening PE and then there's also the risks of anticoagulation and bleeding. Maybe you could comment on that, uh, Dr. Holly. Um, uh, uh, as Shannon mentioned, um, uh, the, the pretty small uh, hit uh, positivity and uh, non-significant hemorrhage events uh, in, uh, across the two pharmacologic groups. Any take-home points for the listeners on that? Um, I mean, not not much. To, are you asking about bleeding or or hit or both? Oh, both, please. Um, I mean, hit I think is is rare enough, particularly in a medical population, uh, that it, it's not a huge game changer. At least in my decision making pro- process in a in a medical population. Um, that said, most of the data we have on it says that it's probably it's imprecise, but it's probably less with low molecular weight heparin. So it certainly doesn't push me away from that at all. But it's not a huge decision decision factor in in a medical ICU population. Um, the bleeding is really challenging, um, and you, you see this with AFib or with any even you know, treatment of VTE. Um, you know, many of the same risk factors that increase your your bleeding risk are, are the same ones that increase your VTE risk. So, um, as you're doing your risk benefit and trying to model these things, you have to get really precise on it. Um, and it's hard with our existing models to get that precise. Uh, and you, you look at even the Improve models. Improve has a uh, uh, a model for Improve was a big uh, database of, of medical patients, and they have a model for both predicting VTE in hospitalized patients and predicting bleeding in, in hospitalized patients. And uh, we published an external validation of their bleeding risk score back in 2016, uh, looking our, looking at our uh, hospitalized population in a military hospital, um, and. There was uh, there was a lot of overlap between those who were both high risk for bleeding and high risk for VTE, uh, and so there was there was still a population where the the scores helped you and said, hey, there are people who you can identify with the scores who are clearly high risk for VTE but less risk for bleeding, um, so you need to to prophylax them. Um, but there there is a lot of overlap, and the risk benefit uh, windows uh, tend to be tight. Uh, so it, it's a challenging uh, it's a challenging area, um, and I think we're going to get better at it over time. Uh, but I don't have a, a sort of a default score that you can that you can use uh, that will will clearly make that decision for you. Unfortunately, it's a we're still at individualized patient decision, uh, and that's hard to do on every single patient that comes into a busy ICU. So I'm hoping we can model it and, and, and get it better over time, and I think we will. 
Great. We're looking forward to that. So we're drawing towards the end of this podcast, and I do want to give each of you the opportunity uh, to summarize the key take-home points uh, for our listeners. Um, I'll start with Dr. Holly and then go to uh, Dr. Fernando. Um, So, Aaron, um, what would you want our listeners to take away from this systematic review? Uh, What would you leave them with? Um, I I still think the most important finding from Dr. Fernando's paper is the the evidence for low molecular weight heparin being superior to unfractionated heparin in a critically ill population. Uh, We've had noise before, randomized controlled trials before, in specific critically ill populations that, that perhaps that was the case. And then we've had other trials in medically ill populations uh, that made it look like they were they were roughly equivalent, at least in terms of the, the primary outcome. So uh, I think this is pretty important, actually, and should give those who are making decisions at the ICU and, and hospital levels, at more the, the population levels, that it should give them more confidence that low molecular weight heparin should be your prophylactic agent of choice in the ICU across most, uh, if not all, uh, patient populations. Um, you know, in the future, I, I do think we'll be able to individualize it better. And there, there may be times where it's, uh, where low molecular weight heparin is, is, is not the best, and you know we'll learn more about renal failure over time and and, and such. So I don't want to obviate the need for indi- an individualized approach because that's that's always the the best. But again, if you're looking at the at the population level and what the general approach should be, um, I think this gives us more confidence that low molecular weight heparin should be the the agent of choice. That's a great summary. Um, we'll leave uh, Dr. Fernando with the last word. Go ahead. Yeah, I, 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 so thanks again for having me. It's been uh, it's been a lot of fun to, to chat with you, Dominique and Aaron, uh, about this. And um, I think there are a couple of take homes for me. Um, I bring me out of three really important take homes. The first is that uh, you know in the ICU we very commonly hold uh, VT prophylaxis for whatever reason that you know whether it's a risk of bleeding or you know procedural or whatnot. Um, but the data is really clear. I think uh, relatively clear. And one thing we rated with, with quite high certainty. Um, that compared to no treatment or placebo, low, you know, uh, low, low molecular weight heparin, at least, and probably unfractionated heparin, do reduce the risk of BTE. So that means, you know, in patients where these treatments are held, uh, for whatever reason, it's important to restart them uh, whenever possible, and especially because we don't have compelling data that suggests that compressive devices or mechanical devices are, are really that efficacious. So for me, uh, you know, that's something I, I keep in mind in my clinical practice is to try and maintain patients on something and and not forget about it uh, or switch them back uh, when it's been held. The second part is exactly what Dr. Holly was saying, which is, I think, you know, more convincing evidence that low molecular weight heparin uh, is superior to unfractionated heparin, um, you know, both with regards to reducing adverse events, you know, albeit a rare one in HIT, um, but also the fact that it's, it seems to be tolerated better by patients um, once or twice a day dosing as compared to, to three times a day dosing or two times a day dosing in, in unfractionated heparin. Uh, and so to me, uh, you know, it, it confirmed a lot of, I think, what the ASH guidelines are saying, but it was nice to, to at least show that uh, some supporting evidence uh, for that. And the third thing that I would say is there's still, this is still a very, very ripe area for, for future research. Uh, we talked about uh, important subgroups, patients at higher risk of bleeding, like those with traumatic brain injury, uh, as going on in protests. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, obviously COVID-19, but also uh, other individual patient populations, those with renal insufficiency. There's, there's tons of room 
um, for investigators who have uh, interest in, in studying this. And, and hopefully they'll be compelled by, by our findings, but also our certainty estimates that go with it. Uh, you know, a low or moderate certainty estimate still says, you know, there's, there's room for, for, for more information on this topic. And uh, whether that's observational or, or ideally randomized, uh, I, I hope that that's an area that continues to be investigated, and, and I'm hopeful it will be. Yeah, we're looking forward to uh, future research and the work that the two of you will be doing in the coming years. Um, a very big thank you to Drs. Fernando and Holly for a fantastic conversation, and a big thank you to our chess community for joining us. I'm Dominic Pepper, and this is a chess podcast.